Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy the sermon podcast. Now today, we are continuing in our series on suffering by talking about a unique kind of suffering, the kind of suffering that few of us actually experience directly, but those that do experience it, they experience it very deeply in ways that are incredibly life-altering and trajectory-changing. And this is actually somewhat specific to our context here in Clarksville, or more broadly to our context in the military. What we're going to talk about today is the continual suffering or the second suffering of killing another human being. And actually how the gospel can speak a message, message of hope to those of you who have been directly or indirectly impacted by the killing of another person. And so I want to talk about four things today. There's kind of four points that I want us to address today as we explore what the Bible says about the second suffering of killing. First is that God loves the warrior. Second, killing is a disintegration and it's a second suffering. Third, there is a purpose in the suffering for the warrior. And finally, there is good news for the warrior. Let's dive in. First, God loves the warrior. I want to start our time by saying that God loves the warrior and he gives his favor and his grace to you. Did you actually know that most of the people that God loves... God delights in, that God gives his favor to, that God elevates to positions of leadership and prominence, that most of the Old Testament um, people that was written about are people that have actually killed others in battle. And here's just a few examples. Abram, Abraham was a trained cavalryman. He led hundreds, he killed thousands of people in the war and defense of his people. Moses was more than likely a commander in the Egyptian army who won battles against Ethiopia. Joshua, he was a professional, trained infantryman that grew up in the battle-hardened wilderness that led God's people into executing his justice in the land of Israel. Gideon, he was an untrained infantryman that God actually called up out of obscurity and cowardice and gave him a message to execute God's justice and his righteousness in driving out the enemies of Israel. There was a man in Hebrews 11 and also in Judges 4 to 5, his name is Barak, and he was a military commander of 10,000 men that again exiled the, 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 the enemies of Israel. Then we also can't forget about Samson in, in the book of Judges. He was a brutal executioner of God's judgment on Israel's foreign enemies. He killed thousands of enemies. Actually, in Judges 15, it says that he killed more than a thousand men in one day with the jawbone of, an, of a donkey. That is insane. He was like a special operations. He was like a fifth group kind of guy. And then we can't forget about David, who God called a man after his own heart. He lived in military conflict for most of his life. He lived in caves. He lived in the wilderness. He was hunted down. He was, like, was kind of like the head of the, the army rangers, right? Like He had a whole bunch of specially trained men underneath of him. And he was like, like a, a colonel. He was directing men. He was fighting advanced warfare. He was out in there 
with his own spear, but he's also directing these incredible trained men with him. And that's just in the Old Testament. But then we see in the New Testament, there's a special place that God has for warriors. There's a special place that God has for military men and women who have engaged in battle and more than likely have killed people. And that's where we get to the centurion. And I actually want to take the time to read this because Jesus says something very special about the centurion that approached him, a Roman centurion, that he said about no one else in his entire ministry on this earth. Look at what he says in Matthew 8. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, a man who was in charge of at least 100 military, he came forward to him and he appealed to him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. He's suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. See, the centurion's were warriors. They were commanders of men. They had blood on their swords. They, had, they were involved in close interpersonal conflict. And I just want to tell you a little bit about who the man that Jesus was speaking about that said he had the most faith in all of Israel. This is a quote from Flavius, who was a Roman historian that wrote this around the three to 500 AD time frame. He said these words. He says, the centurion in the infantry is chosen for his size strength and dexterity in throwing his missile weapons and for his skill in the use of sword and shield. In sort, for his expertness in all the exercises. He is to be vigilant, temperate, active, and readier to execute the orders he receives than to talk. Strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers and obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed and to have their weapons constantly rubbed and bright. My friends, this was a hardened military man keeping strict order, keeping strict discipline that was skilled in every way so that he might have the chops to be able to lead some of the most elite fighting force in the world. And Jesus celebrates him. He says he has the most faith in all of Israel. Why? Because he believes that Jesus has all the authority. And we're actually going to talk about this in a few minutes, about how God has placed warriors underneath of governmental leaders whom he has given authority to. And that when the warriors operate underneath the people in authority over them, that what they do is not culpable on them. So we're going to talk about this idea of authority and what authority means. But, but the centurion understands that Jesus has all the authority. And Jesus looks at him and celebrates him. He celebrates his faith. My friends, if you are a warrior, if you have killed someone in combat, you're wrestling through what that looks like, I want you to know that today, right now, as you're watching this, that God loves you. That you can have access to a faith that can be celebrated in the greatest of all of God's people. 
that if you're wrestling with this second suffering today, I want you to know that you are in the company of great people who are loved and used and useful to God. They're loved by God, that God celebrates and elevates to positions of leadership and influence in his kingdom. And today we are going to explore the second suffering of killing and how the good news of Jesus actually brings healing to you in the midst of it. But I want to first make sure that you know that you are absolutely loved by God. Next, I want us to explore for a few minutes how killing truly is a disintegration, that it is a second suffering. You see, suffering in in kind of our our series that we're looking at, the theme is that suffering truly is a disintegration. It, It breaks us down. And that reintegration can build us back up again, but we have to first see how the unique suffering that we're experiencing is breaking us down, and and different types of difficulty break us down in different ways. So how I've said this is that in the second suffering of killing, having to take the life of another human being, it breaks down our dignity and our humanity. You see, what we were designed to care for, which was creation, we were designed to care for one another, we were designed to cultivate peace, it's actually destroyed when another life is taken. And you see, taking another human's life, it actually wrecks our dignity. It denies the worthiness that we are supposed to have for human life. We're supposed to preserve human life. This is how God created us. And so when we take a human life, it wrecks the unique dignity that we are supposed to carry for all of life. Not only that, but it destroys our humanity and what makes us human. What makes us human is intrinsically to care for other people. And you see, this is why when you have to kill another human being, it's what I like to call a second suffering. See, there's the initial suffering is in the moment. It's with that person who was killed. It's with their family. It's the stopping of their generation. It's the stopping of of their lineage. It's the stopping of their potential. However, the second suffering is over a lifetime, and that's inside of you if you've had to do that. that. That's a burden that you carry with you. It's laborsome. It's heavy. And it's a pain that no human being should ever have to experience. But those who are on the front lines defending our nation, defending our country, they have to bear that burden. And so we must first acknowledge that this is a suffering for you if you've had to go through that. It's a suffering that you have been subjected to. And if you have a spouse or if you have a brother or sister or father or mother that has had to take the life of another person, it's a suffering that you, that's kind of reverberating onto you as well. But I want us to look first at why we have to kill and what the Bible says about how killing, you don't have to feel guilt and shame for killing when done correctly. Well, the first thing is that all killing, we have to first kind of baseline say that all killing is a result of the brokenness of the world around us. It's that lack of peace that is present because of sin and because of the fall of human beings. So we got to look at what happened before death, before sin, before killing entered into the world. We have to look back at Genesis 1. Look with me at Genesis 1.28. God blessed them. Adam and Eve. He's, he put Adam and Eve in a garden and he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So God commissions Adam and Eve, he says, to be fruitful and multiply. This is to be generative. It's not to be destructive. They were never designed to be destructive. They were never designed to break things down. They were only designed to build things up. And then he also uses this word, have dominion. That word dominion means careful rule and organization in which everything thrives. So God put them in this kind of wild land. He put them in this wild garden. And he gave them a job, a responsibility to order the garden, to tend it, to actually tend the animals, to bring dominion or careful rule and reign and organization over all living things so that the living things continue to live and they continue to thrive. And we see that mankind was never meant to kill because in the same context, God tells them that they are given every green plant for food, but they weren't designated any meat or animals to kill. There was no killing at all. But we read, sadly, in the first few pages of the Bible that mankind rebelled against God. Adam and Eve rejected God's plan, they interjected sin and brokenness into the picture. And what we find is that injustice entered, that God's perfect justice and order, the scales were very perfectly balanced, and those scales became unbalanced as a result of the fall, and killing entered into the world. Now, what we see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and the centrality of Jesus is that one day, because of Jesus' work on the cross to redeem us, which we are going to talk about in a few minutes, one day God will return and he will set the world right again. He will place all the scales in balance once and for all. But until that point, God actually delegates justice and the advancement of justice, the balancing of the weights. He actually delegates justice to nations and governments in order to preserve justice within their own boundaries. And actually part of preserving justice involves the killing of other people. This is an unfortunate and sad reality. But we see this in 1 Peter 2. This is, this is um, Jesus speaking through Peter, and he says these words, Be subject to the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, listen to this, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Do you see how God is delegating justice, delegating authority to administer justice, to balance the scales Although imperfectly, he delegates that to the emperor, the president, whoever is in charge, and to those that that president or emperor puts into place. So we see this is why we actually have to kill, that God delegates justice and authority to those underneath, to human beings, to fallible human beings, and to governments. And actually, we see this expressly stated by Paul in the book of Romans. Now, he's writing in the book of Romans, and I want us to look at Romans 13 here about how God gives authority to nations to execute justice, and that you and me are supposed to submit to that. Now, before we read this, I want to remind you that Paul is writing in the first century to followers of Jesus who were under an oppressive Roman government. The government that he's writing about is not perfect. The government that he's writing about, that he's writing for the Romans to submit to at the capital city, Rome, is actually persecuting Christians. And so it's really this weird dichotomy that I want us to look at about how nations are to administer justice, although we know from the get-go that they will do so imperfectly. Look with me at Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, 
For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, again, remember, he's not writing to a perfect system of government. He's writing to an imperfect Roman system that did some good, but also was doing a lot of evil. But what he says is, is that God is actually the one that has all the authority in the world. This is what made the centurion so faith-filled in the eyes of Jesus, because he saw the reality that no one else around him saw, that Jesus was God and that God has all the authority. So Jesus has all the authority. And so what we see is that God has all authority, but God delegates that authority to human institutions and those that have been instituted by God. And so we see that every governmental authority in God's sovereignty is placed there for a reason. So whoever sits in the seat of the White House in the United States of America is actually placed there by God, that God in his sovereignty has ordained that person to sit there. And thus with every other country in the world, he establishes governmental authorities under his authority to execute justice. Let's continue. Romans 13, verse 3. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is in the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Josh, okay, this, this kind of makes sense, but it kind of doesn't, because there are governments who seek to do good, but there are also governments who do really, really bad things. So how do we navigate this? Again, we're, Paul is writing about the Romans. They kept order, but they did really bad things too. My friends, this is the point. God is the God of all. That God is the one who will ultimately execute justice and judgment for all people equally and fairly. But he delegates that authority in the here and now to imperfect governing authorities who will do some things right and will probably do many things wrong. But he tells us that unless it's in direct violation of the scriptures, we must follow the rulers that God has placed in authority over us. And so we see this because Paul actually does enact civil disobedience at times. He is told by governing authorities not to preach. But what does he do? He goes and preaches the gospel. Yet also he works within the system. When he is captured, he wants to go to Rome. So he appeals to Caesar himself, which means that he is working within the authority structure of the time to appeal to Caesar to get to Rome to speak directly to him, hopefully to share the gospel with him. But then there's also another phrase here in Romans 13, verse 4. It says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, the governing authorities, do not bear the sword in vain. My friends, those who are warriors, those who are part of the military, you are bearing the sword of God's judgment on the unjust. That warriors, in the service of their government, are actually servants of God and underneath the authority that God has placed. Now, he said that very clearly it says, but you must execute justice and judgment. Those who are those warriors, those who bear the sword, you must do so under authority. Look with me at Romans 13 verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities, listen to this concluding statement, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. 
So we see that God establishes governmental authorities in positions of leadership and that we must be subject, come underneath of their authority, except in places where it directly violates the scripture. And we see this in the life of Paul. We see this explicitly stated here, that whoever's sitting in the seat of power in the government is actually appointed by God and is responsible to God for how they steward the authority that he has delegated to them. Remember, God holds all the authority. He has delegated that to the governmental. Now, I want, how does this relate to killing and specifically the difference between killing and murder on the battlefield? Well, I, I want to be very clear here that if you have had to kill someone in the line of duty, a righteous killing is when you are under authority. You are bearing that sword, right? You're bearing the sword on behalf of those whom God has placed in authority. And if you have people in leadership, if you have people that tell you, you need to take that person out, then guess what? That is a righteous killing. It is not up to you to understand all the facts. It is not up to you to determine whether that truly was right or not. It's actually... God's responsibility to hold the people in leadership above you in your chain of command, he is going to hold them accountable. They're going to stand before God one day and be responsible for the decisions that they ask you to do. However, it's your job to be obedient to those whom you have willingly subjected yourselves to. You have subjected, if you're in the military, you have willingly taken an oath to defend your country. And God wants you to bear that oath unless it's in direct violation of the scriptures. Now, an unrighteous murder is not being under authority. And what that does is that actually is usurping God and the people that God establishes to execute justice if you are making autonomous, independent choices. So if you're on the battlefield and you're not told to do something, but you make an autonomous, independent choice to act out of your own will and not under the authority of someone that God has placed in you, that, and if in the course of that action you kill someone, that is murder, that is unrighteous. And so we see that killing people can be righteous or unrighteous, because here's why. Actually, God kills a lot of people in the Bible. Like, it's pretty hard to see both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We see that God does kill people in the Bible, and what God does is righteous and is just. So what makes killing wrong is when we stand in the place of God, when we usurp the authority by ourselves, when we don't have the authority to do so. Now, here's what happens. Regardless of whether you have committed a righteous or an unrighteous killing, what that does is it creates suffering inside of you. And for many that I've talked to, it, it creates a guilt. There is a guilt that happens inside of you for the killing, as if you have done something wrong. But my friends, when done correctly, killing under authority, it actually mitigates your culpability. It doesn't rest squarely on your shoulders because God is sovereign. And, and the, the governmental authorities that are over you are held responsible by God. And what is in, happening in that moment when you're feeling that guilt is, is actually an invitation of God in your life to humility, that you are actually under your authority, that actually your authority bears more weight of responsibility than you do. And actually the government is then responsible to God himself. So this should humble you, not draw you into deeper guilt. If handled appropriately if you come to Jesus with your guilt. Uh, other people have described this idea of shame that comes. Um, there is a certain tension and adrenaline that happens on the battlefield. And from what I've heard from my friends that are wrestling through this right now, at times there is a certain excitement that happens when you take down an enemy. Now my friends, executing justice is doing right. 
And when justice is accomplished, this is a good thing. And remember, God has designed governmental authorities to execute justice. And so in the heat of battle, in the heat of moment, God has actually given you these incredible physiological things that happen to heighten your senses, to sharpen your senses, to get you to be able to put eyes on target and bullets where they need to go to accomplish the goal that your commanders has set out for you to do. And so when you accomplish that goal, there is a natural euphoric reaction that you quite can't control sometimes. And you don't have to feel shame when you kill someone in the course of doing what the people in leadership have asked you to do. Look with me at Jeremiah 9. This just gives an example of the heart of God in this. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, listen to this, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. As God is both completely loving and faithful to love those who he said he will love. God is also administering justice, rightness, balancing the scales, and producing goodness and righteousness in the world. And he is equally pleased when those things happen. So my friends, if you are feeling shame for the excitement that follows a battle, I want you to know that God gives you an incredible amount of grace and that in the course of your duties, as you accomplish the goal that God has set out for you through your authorities and people in leadership over you, my friends, that is something to be celebrated. Now, here's the deal. There is an invitation that is happening here for the warrior when you struggle with the second suffering of killing. And there's many here, but I just chose to highlight two. The first invitation is an invitation to submit to God's sovereignty. That when you feel stress, when you feel guilt or shame, one of the first invitations in the midst of that suffering is to believe in the sovereignty of God. Look with me at Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. My friends, here's what we see in the scriptures. That God cares for every single human life. Every single one. He cares for your life and he cares for the life of the person that you had to take. He does. He cares for all of us equally to the point where he numbers the hairs on our head. Uh, a penny, uh, uh, just a worthless, worthless scrap of metal for two sparrows. And he says that, that God knows everything about those, those worthless birds. How much more does he care about you and me? That God is so intricately understanding of every single little detail. He is sovereign over everything that he even numbers the hairs on our head. My friends, let me be clear. You cannot take a life except that God allows it in his sovereignty. You cannot act independently or, or autonomously from God's sovereignty. That God knew before creation began that you were going to have that conflict in which someone was going to die. John Newton says these words, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Let me say that again. Everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. So the first invitation is an invitation to accept God's sovereignty 
that you cannot act independently or autonomously from his sovereign will. Next is an invitation to humility and faith. My friends, as we mentioned before, you are under authority. So is our government. You're under the authority of the governmental leaders that God has put into place. The governmental leaders are responsible to God for their actions. But here's the truth. You cannot heal or hold yourself together on your own. And let me tell you, this goes directly in opposition to everything the military teaches you about being independent, about picking yourself up by the bootstraps. This is poison for the Christian. This is poison to your soul that you can only experience healing by coming to Jesus. You cannot turn to alcohol. You cannot turn to activism. You cannot turn to self-loathing or hiding. It will destroy you. It will crush you. You see, I know many of my friends turn to alcohol to drown the feelings of guilt and shame for what they've done. Because alcohol is a numbing agent in your life. But what it will do was it will not take away the pain. It will just prolong your suffering. It will prolong it because you don't deal with it. You push it away. And what alcohol does and what alcohol dependency does is it actually puts you into a deeper depressive state chemically, biologically, and spiritually. Alcohol will just prolong your suffering. Not only that, but I've seen some of my friends turn to activism where they try to advocate either against war or how to do it better or more correctly. And they devote their whole life on how to, how to take their experiences and somehow redeem them for something good, whether that through, be through self-defense or through peacekeeping efforts. But my friends, you cannot outwork your pain. It will continue to come back. It will continue to hurt you. You cannot outwork it. And in fact, the more you run, the more you labor, the more burdened you'll feel. Next, I know some of my friends that have dealt with immense self-loathing, and that is just a pit that will spiral you deeper and deeper, and it will become a just cavern of hell for you. And that can lead to self-harm or suicide if unchecked. And finally, hiding. Many of my friends just push away, say, I'm fine, I'm okay. They project confidence, they project security, but really what you're doing is you're not pushing it out, you're just pushing it down to fester in deeper ways where it will come out at the, the most, when someone cuts you off in traffic, you'll get inexorbitantly angry and you won't know why. And it's because that pain just will continue to hide and fester in your life. And my friends, all of these responses will compound your pain. But the invitation from Jesus is this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus says these beautiful words. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My friends, this is one of the hardest things for the warrior. This is one of the hardest things when you are taught from birth or childhood or with your family or at boot camp, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, do it yourself. Work harder, do more, be better. But actually what Jesus says, come to me in weakness. Come to me in a weakened state when you are weary and heavy laden. And my friends, when you take the life of someone, that is a burden that you have to bear. That is a labor that you have to carry. But what Jesus says is you don't have to do it alone and you don't have to do it forever. What he says is that you can bring your labor and your burden to him and he will not give you guilt he will not give you shame. He won't chastise you. He will give you rest. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul is talking. 
It says, but, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My friends, taking the life of another human being is a hardship. It is a calamity. But you can be content. You can rest in the power of Jesus to overcome that, to heal that pain, to actually become more like Jesus in the midst of it if you come to him and lay your burden down with him. The most courageous act you can do as a warrior is to come to God in weakness and let him change you. My friends, the suffering that you experience, it breaks down your self-reliance. And alcohol, activism, self-loathing, or hiding will keep trying to get you to rely on yourself, but it's a hamster wheel that spins faster and faster, and you either have to run faster to keep it going, or you're going to get thrown off. And my friends, here's the deal. You'll either submit to God in weakness, or you'll be crushed under the weight of guilt or shame. But this is the good news of the gospel. You can rebuild your reliance on God, and there is good news for the warrior. Now, the first good news is this, is that God actually was the one who committed the first killing. And the first killing was completely innocent. Look with me at Genesis 3.21. It says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. My friends, after Adam and Eve rebelled against the one command that God gave them in the garden, God appears to them. They are naked. It says they are ashamed because of their nakedness. God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you that you should feel shame? They proceed to tell God what they have done. And now he tells them, okay, this is what your life is going to be like now. It's going to be really hard. But then he lovingly and carefully, he creates for them permanent coverings. And it says garments of skin. Well, what did he have to do? He had to kill an innocent animal, more than likely a lamb, to create a garment of skin so that Adam and Eve could be covered in their nakedness. And my friends, since the beginning pages of the Bible, death and killing of an innocent is central to the Christian faith. And it is culminated at the cross of Jesus. You see, my friends, Jesus was killed unjustly so that you don't have to suffer the pain of killing or murder and that you can truly be healed when you come to him. Look with me at these words from 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were once straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. My friends, you can be healed of the disintegration as you follow Jesus, as you accept his substitution for you, as you accept his innocent death for you. He died the death that you and I deserve. We deserved to be killed because of our rebellion against God. But yet Jesus took the place for us. He took the unjust death so that when you execute his justice in the world, you don't have to feel condemned. My friends, the key to all of this is receiving him as your savior who was killed for you. So I want to invite you into this. So if you're joining us and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, the only way that you can experience healing from the second suffering of killing is if you repent. That's turn away from all the ways that you try to solve the problem yourself. Turn away from alcohol. Turn away from activism. 
turn away from self-loathing, turn away from hiding, and then turn towards Jesus who was murdered innocently so that you can experience new life. And then you put your faith and trust in him. What that means is that you actually submit to him in weakness. You place the knee down and you say, I have a new commander in chief of my life. You can make that pledge today. You can swear an allegiance, swear an oath to follow Jesus. You can make him Lord, make him king over your life to serve him until the day you die. You come under his authority for you. That is what makes you a Christian and that's what leads you into the healing grace of Jesus. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have had to kill another human being, it is hard to come to Jesus in weakness because everything in the world around us tells us to do it ourselves. So I want to give you some practical next steps. This is for the Christian who's already chosen to follow Jesus. This is some next steps for you. Just four words that I'm going to describe. Next steps are on how to deal with the second suffering of killing. First is mourn. Mourn the sin that led that, to your need to kill. Mourn the sin in the governments. Mourn the sin of Adam and Eve that broke the world that caused you to have to kill. There's an appropriate level of mourning that needs to happen. Second, learn what God says about you with Scripture on God's attitude towards warriors. Like, read the Scriptures as it relates to David, as it relates to Barak, as it relates to Samson, who were imperfect who are not good people a lot of times, yet God loved them and used them even in the midst of their difficulty, even in the midst of their challenges, even in the midst of their disobedience to God, even as they both killed people righteously and unrighteously, God still loved them and used them. I want you to learn what God says about you as a warrior because the Bible is filled with warriors who are executing justice, who are imperfect. Third, I want you to see with new eyes future armed conflict in light of the gospel. So if you're still in the military and you will have to go pick up a rifle, you will have to go into enemy territory, you will have to pull out a knife, you might have to both defend yourself or actively engage with someone in that your leadership has told you needs to get taken out. My friends, you are under authority and killing under authority does not lead to guilt. You do not have to feel that guilt. That is shared culpability and that is as long as it's not in direct contradiction to the scripture, you can see with new eyes that you are under the authority of King Jesus and he has placed these people in authority over you to be obedient to them. And as you're obedient to them, you're doing God's will. Finally, come to Jesus in your pain consistently and let him heal you with his death on your behalf. You need to consistently come to Jesus. Not just once. You come to Jesus once for your salvation, but you come to Jesus consistently for your sanctification to be made more like him, to heal. And you will need healing, even as a Christian, if you have to take the life of another human being. Because we're just not meant to do that. And so as you come to Jesus in weakness, he will heal you, give you his power, and give you his grace. My friend, coming to God does not lead to guilt. It only leads to grace. Coming to the true Jesus, the true savior of your soul, he will never give you guilt. He will never take you off your grind. He will always give you grace, which by the way, when you have true grace and the true peace of God, you will be more effective as a soldier on the battlefield. You won't have to push away that guilt and shove it down and shove your emotions down. You'll be able to fully experience your emotions even on the middle of the battlefield and you will be clear-minded and your conscience will be clear to do what you need to do in the moment. 
because you understand you're under authority, you understand your identity, you understand the mission, you understand that whatever you do, God will give you grace, regardless of whether you make the right or wrong decision, which then frees up your mind to get the task done. So as you follow Jesus, as you operate in grace, you'll be a better soldier, you'll be a better warrior, you'll be, be you're clear-headed, guarantee you. My friends, whether you have killed correctly under authority on the battlefield, or you've murdered someone incorrectly and autonomously, the hope for you is still the same. Jesus was killed for you so that when you kill, you can receive his rest from guilt and shame and receive his grace to heal. Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, I pray for my friends, especially my military friends who might be watching this, who have had to take the life of another human being. I pray that they would submit to you, that they would come under your lordship, that they would receive your healing and your grace, that they would see that at your cross you have resolved all brokenness that made it necessary for you to go on the cross, that you've already anticipated all of our sin, all of our brokenness, and all of the brokenness that led us to have to do these things, like taking another human being's life, that you infinitely care for every human being and that nothing we do is outside of your sovereignty. I pray for my friends that you give them peace and rest tonight. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.